it's physical theater. It's about building in discovery and action and surprise and fear and all of those things, which in a real fight you don't have time for, but on stage I need to build those moments in the choreography. Hello and welcome to AI Arts In, the podcast produced by Creative Pinellas. I'm Barbara St. Clair, your host, and I am here today with Dan Granke, who is a fight director. Yes. And also an actor and a director and a producing artist, many things. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about yourself to kind of get us started. (laughs) Uh, Well, I am all of those things. I'm also an educator. So what is a fight director, really? A fight director is somebody who gets the pleasure of only working on the most fun parts of the play. You know, I come in and it's interesting, it's the term fight director. Uh, there's a lot of debate about what to call ourselves. For a long time, the term was fight choreographer because the idea was you come in and just give them the choreographed moves for the fight. But we started to think of ourselves as fight directors because it's more than just giving choreography. It's also coaching the acting and understanding of how to present violence and what story you're telling with the violence. So really what we do is we go in and work with the director and work with the actors and work with the text. And say, what is the story that needs to be told here? What is the story that we as a group of artists want to tell based on this text? And then how do we effectively achieve that within the skill set that we have? Because I might walk in and it might be like, I've got two hours and two actors who've never picked up swords in their lives. And what do we do that tells the story rather than what moves do I give them to make them look cool? Although I like making them look cool when I can. Okay, so that already has me intrigued because I was thinking that what you do is you teach some techniques. But what you said is what story you want to tell, how to present violence and what story you want to tell about that. Yeah, that's been a big evolution in in me as an artist over the years. And I think collectively, uh, you know, I'm part of an organization, the Society of American Fight Directors. And while we still teach technique and believe in technique, and again, when I can come in and I have some actors who have some technical skill, we can do some really cool looking moves. That's not what it's about. I mean, really, it's about what is the journey we want the audience to take. Do we want them to feel horrified by this violence? Do we want them to be excited by this violence? What's the what's the final outcome in terms of the play? Why is that fight there? You know, I was working on a Romeo and Juliet recently, and one of the big things is understanding that first fight is there to be funny. They start the play with this duel, and if you understand the history of what they're saying, and if you understand what's going on, the servants who are fighting what they're saying is absolutely ridiculous. They're goofballs. They're like guys who learned martial arts off YouTube. You know, they're the way that they're talking about sword fighting. Remember that move we saw that was really cool. Be sure to do that one. That's what they say. There's a line, you know, remember thy swashing blow. The swashing blow is a very simple move, but it's this thing where it's like, okay, you don't know anything about what you're talking about. And so again, it's to establish, that fight is to establish funny. When I go in to work on it, I don't want that fight to be too gritty or too brutal. I want that to be the later fight. And again, some of this is obviously dependent on the production or the director. A director might come in and say, no, I want to set the scene for the gritty, brutal play this is going to be. This is my gritty, brutal Romeo and Juliet. But if you're going off based just purely on the text, that fight's there to get the audience laughing and enjoying themselves and ready for the romantic first half of that play versus the fights that happen in the third act, which is designed to turn the text from something that's funny and light and enjoyable into something that's tragic and horrible. And so how do you take them on that journey? Because those fights can't be too light. I mean, I really think the killing of Tybalt's got to be bad. Okay, so how does that look? If I'm sitting in the audience, (laughs) what am I seeing in the first fight that looks very different than what I'm seeing in the second fight? Again, there's a lot of ways to do it. Uh, One way might be that the actors in the first fight, again, they don't have good skills. They're throwing these big, wild, swinging blows. They're losing their swords. If you have the full set of the marketplace, they're grabbing baskets and hitting each other with baskets. You don't have uh, uh, one of my great mentors, J. David Brimmer. He's a practicing Quaker. 
This guy's like one of the foremost experts on violence in stage in America. He works on Broadway all the time. He did the gun violence for Lieutenant of Inishmore on Broadway. And he's sitting here, he's a practicing Quaker. And he said, well, my job is to show the consequences. And so that first fight, I might not be showing consequences. Nobody's going to get hurt. Mm -hmm. Nobody's going to get stabbed. People are going to, you know, accidentally bump into each other and look silly. And it'll be a, a little more like your Errol Flynn swashbuckling, you know, those old films where mm -hmm. it's a, a lot of dash and daring do. Yeah. Ha -ha. And, and then, but then at the end of the, sometime during the Mercutio Tybalt fight, that's going to change. And there's going to be something ugly. Somebody's going to get hit. There's going to be a mean blow. You know, somebody's going to slip an elbow over a sword and hit him in the face. And suddenly things get serious. You know, and then when Romeo comes back in, it's about, and this is where, again, why it's, for me, it's about direction and working with actors and working with the director is it's about coaching an attitude. You know, if the attitude is, ha ha, then it's a little more fun and light. But if the attitude is, I'm here to murder you, you know, how do I make it so that the audience feels this horrible, bad intent? When Romeo sees Tybalt, how do we take that energy of Mercutio is dead? Again, he starts that scene with, you know, Tybalt gives him the villain. He says, you know, villain. And Romeo says, uh, you know, I, I, you'll see, I love you. Don't worry. This is all cool, right? He's trying to brush off the challenge that Tybalt's giving him. And then Mercutio steps in and accepts the challenge. And that's where the tragedy kind of happens. But then when Tybalt comes back on, Romeo says, take back that villain that late thou gave me. He's now ready to fight. And so how do we coach that journey for the actor and also make sure that that journey is clear to the audience? Because the audience doesn't understand it, right? How many of us nowadays have seen a sword fight, have seen a fist fight, right? We don't know. And even if we did, what's real doesn't always look right on stage. Uh, it's about taking the audience on a journey and helping them understand what the arc of it is. We break the fight into phrases, partly to help the actors learn it and memorize it. Also because we need those little breaks in between so the audience can see, okay, who won? Who's winning? Who's losing? And why? You know, I'm, I always want the audience to try to be able to score the fight. And if they can't, then there's a problem because they're just going to be watching moves. And no matter how cool and fast they are, they're going to get bored sooner or later. More often than not, I show up and it's like, can the actor, if I pre-choreograph, I might choreograph something that my body can do or that my assistant's body can do, but that actor is never going to be able to execute. Right. I remember going in on a fight and looking at it and going, okay, we're just going to cross swords once and most of the rest of it's going to be posturing. You know, there's, there's more ways to tell the story than just moves. And we want to go in and we're working with the actor and seeing what they can do. And it's hard because I want to challenge them and push them to do the best they can and have the best fight that we can. But I also don't ever want to be in a situation where I'm looking at an actor and going, yeah, let's cut that move because you can't do it. <laughs> right? So let's say you show up, the director introduces you. Mm -hmm. I'm guessing before that, you've probably talked to the director about... Hopefully. <laughs> Sometimes not. Okay. But... So you show up, the director says, hey, here's Dan. What happens... What happens right then? Right then, I want to make sure that they know that they're they're part of the process. That again, they're not uh, little robots that I'm putting choreography on. That it's like, hey, you're the characters. If there's something you want to do, if there's something you feel, if there's something that this just doesn't feel right when I show it to you, and you don't think you're gonna get it, let's do the thing that you does work for you. And I love it when actors come to me and say, can we do this? The first thing we do is we sit down and we start looking at where do you start the fight, right? What does the text say the fight is about? And again, what's the spirit of the production? Where where are we? And again, we'll talk with the director and we'll look at the script and I have my own opinion, you know, about who launches the first attack. But I think that's something where if the actors have something that they want to contribute in terms of what they think the character is going through, that's where I want to start. Okay. Because it's got to start with what's happening before. Some directors will give me a page or two of script or even a whole scene. They'll say, you just do the scene. The fight starts a few minutes before the swords cross. What is driving the impetus to fight? Why does the character feel they can't talk anymore? Right? Why does the character want to fight? 
there's these are things that have to be building in the scenes before one back in the days when we thought of ourselves as fight choreographers one of the problems when you'd go to see a play is it'd be like they'd be talking 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 and then there'd literally be like a break in a fight it's not launching out of the the impulse and the energy and that's so important because again that's the story of the fight the story is i'm so mad at you that i feel the need to kill you and if the actor hasn't built to that then it looks silly when they uh, right. jump at each other with swords The biggest thing that keeps people safe in stage combat is we describe it as the cue reaction action principle. But the idea is I give some kind of cue that the person is going to be attacked, but then instead of launching my attack right away, I wait to see that they're starting to react before I launch my so attack. It, I want to make sure that the victim is moving before the aggressor is moving. Which is, uh, to be honest, I, I've been thinking about it as true to real life. Really the way I think about it is, is the attacker sends an intention. Right. You read my clear intention to attack you, and you start to move before I attack you. Mm -hmm. Which is what would happen in a real fight where somebody doesn't die. So that's the cue and the reaction. Action. And then the action is the follow-through of the actual attack. And then at, uh, slightly after that even, we delay it. Right In real life, if you're throwing a punch at me, I'm going to try to block you right away. In stage, I'm going to actually move out of the way and then block you. So it slows things down a little, so again, that the audience can sort of follow this rhythm. And so that they can see the character in danger. Right? I don't want to look like a psychic ninja. I don't want to look like I know that you knew, I knew you were going to attack there. Ha! Block. I want to see that moment where the sword is almost about to get me and then I block it. So that the audience can, again, see danger. Right? I love watching like amazing martial artists go at it with each other. It's wonderful to watch. But there's a point where it goes, okay, where's the sense that something could go wrong? It's mm -hmm. too perfect and too clean. And it looks like choreography because they know they know the next step. They know the next step. Mm -hmm. There's not a discovery of what the next step is. There's not that moment where the character blocks the sword and sees the opening on the other character and reposts. Repost being a word for to return the attack. Right. So it, it, it's about building in, uh, it, it's physical theater. It's about building in discovery and action and surprise and fear and all of those things, which in a real fight you don't have time for. But on stage, I need to build those moments in the choreography. You know, that's I'm always thinking about how does the the score of actions work? What's happening moment to moment for the character? Because they, the poor actors, they, I, I'm throwing so much at them so fast, right? Again, usually fight choreography is the last thing we worry about. Sometimes I'll get calls like, "Hey, we're opening Romeo and Juliet next week. Can you come in and do the fights?" It's like, yeah, we needed to do this a little sooner. But I go in, and it's it's really about making sure that the actors understand just like they would in a monologue. What's going on in the character's head, moment to moment? What is that moment of fear? What is that moment of surprise? And how can they do that while doing the choreography safely? Even though it's choreographed and even though it's practiced, you're still having someone move their fist towards you or <laughs> a stick or a whatever. Yes. So there's the fear that you are presenting to the audience because that's your job. And then yeah. I think there must be real fear, right? Well, of course. And we, we try to get past that as much as we can. Because again, I'm trying to build a choreography that I know that they can accomplish. Uh, the, the watchwords are confident and competent. I want them to be competent, but I also want them to be confident in what they're doing. The most dangerous thing in a stage fight is actually when somebody's really scared. I watched somebody get kicked in the face because the person who was kicking them was so scared that they looked away. So they weren't looking to see where their face was and they actually kicked them in the face. Broke their nose. Oh. Blood everywhere. But the thing is that the that fear is natural and of course it's horrifying. And so I do understand that when I go in and I'm working with actors, there's so much pressure and the fear of the blades. And even more than the fear of the opponent is actually the fear of hurting your partner. 
Spike's direction has taught me how wonderful and beautiful people are because nobody wants to hurt anybody. And sometimes that actually is more dangerous because it, for it all to work right, it requires you to be where you're supposed to be. And so if you think, oh, I'm gonna be a little extra safe and put it an extra two inches off, then suddenly you're in a different place and then we're off balance and then things go wrong. Trust is the watchword, really it is. And part of that is part of that is building them slowly. Again, we start really slow, right? The whole thing is it starts in slow motion, right? I'm teaching choreography and even usually the actors want to start moving faster. I keep telling them, no, you got to slow it down, slow it down, be really precise and clean, do it a little bit every day. My best is when I can get in early in the process and they can work on it a little every day till they own it. And you know, there is going to be some derivation. There is going to be that little two inch change. There's going to be that thing where the actor is holding his hand with his knuckles up instead of with his palm up. The important thing is that they feel really confident with the choreography because they can't do that acting stuff till they feel that. And then I come in and look at what they're doing and, and help make sure it's safe, just that they've maintained it, that anything that's changed a little bit, if it's safe, I let that ride because it's not about me, it's about them. Do they look good? Are they safe? Those are the two big things. They must be both. Over the years I've learned, again, and keeping it simple, again, the more we think about story and not moves. Because again, you look at the, the awesome people I work with at St. Pete Opera, I love those people. They're just some of the sweetest, most wonderful people on earth. And they want to work really hard for me and they want it to look good and they want to honor my work. And so they do. It's not about me showing my cool moves. It's about us as a group of artists telling a story, you know, and about coming, and again, coming into the room and being flexible. So I, oh, we were going to put that on the stairs, but they've decided there's a bed in this scene. Oh, well, that's great. We'll just put him on the bed for the fight. We'll have this moment where he's kind of on the bed and he turns around and he's doing all these parries while he's pressed up against the bed, which is kind of poetic because the whole scene's about uh, his relationship with this woman whose bed it is. So it's kind of neat, you know? I, I love leaving room for accidents like that and for growth creatively. We're in an evolutionary period right now. The stage combat that's been done that was based on sort of those old swashbuckling movies. There was this Belgian saber fencer named Fred Cavins who came over from Belgium uh, in the turn of the 20th century and was starting in, in Hollywood. He was the guy who was teaching all of the guys swashbuckling. And Cavins said, we need to take the moves of saber fencing and do them absolutely correctly, but exaggerated. You wanna, you wanna do it correct, but really big. And that's how we make it look theatrical and make it look stylish and fun. And in the past about 30 to 40 years, there's been this huge interest in this an amateur, incredible hard work done by amateur historians and a few professional ones in rediscovering the uh, heritage of the European martial arts and what those sword, the sword play of the time actually looked like. And it looks very different from what we do on stage. So I, I have to ask you this question. It's very selfish of me, but since we were talking about sword play, the Princess Bride. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably not the only one who ever asked you that. The sword play in that and uh, the best swords person in the yeah, world. Yeah, I yeah. wonder if you've seen that movie. And... Of course. But you... I love that movie. Okay. How can you not love that movie? The movie's great um, in every way, not just the sword fighting. And that the story of that fight, right? So here's this story. And the story is, which there's nothing wrong with that story, the most wonderful swordsman in the world. But you watch them and it's so brilliantly theatrical. Bill Hobbs is the choreographer who did that, who's one of the two really great film sword fight choreographers that we've had. Him and Bob Anderson were the big ones. And Bill Hobbs worked in England on stage. So he's bringing his stage fighting experience. And he's one of the heirs to that great Hollywood tradition of flashy, swashbuckling swordplay. You watch that fight, they do double taps. So there'll be a moment where one of them will attack the head and the other one will block. And then the guy without moving the block will hit the block again with another attack, which is purely, again, that makes no martial sense, but it's brilliant and it creates rhythm and it creates this ding ding, which is lovely. I sometimes like to think that I'd love people to be able to enjoy my fights even if they can't see them. 
What is the sounds the swords are making? What are the reactions? Can you hear the whoa, ha, the sounds? It's so hard sometimes to convince the actors. Yeah, you need to make that silly sound of fear. And the audience, it tells the audience something. It gives them something to hang their hat on and go, I don't know what was happening because I don't understand sword fighting, but whatever that was, it was dangerous, right? Because that's what we have to help people understand because they don't understand, they, but they love watching. And again, what's the fun of that fight is watching those two guys. What's the story? It's two guys. It's one guy going, I'm going to kick your butt. The other guy going, yeah, I'm going to kick your butt. And they're going, you could kick my butt. Oh, no, no, you could kick my butt. I really like you. It's a little love, <laughs> right? It's a little bromance happening yeah. between these two guys as they, they talk through their, they both have studied historical swordplay and all of the masters that they mentioned there are actual historical masters. And they're not doing any of their techniques. Not at all, but they actually are the names of actual historical fencers. And it's actually really fun. I, I was playing around with a friend once and I said, well, what if we did actually say, would that would this person's technique counter that person's technique? You could totally set it up that way. Stage combat is like the tiniest molehill. We're a tiny community of people and we all uh, love each other. Um, we're family. You know, anybody who picks up a sword is is instantly related to me in a weird way. And we all have our styles and there's things I can't get away from. I'm always going to look for that gritty moment because I love that. I love really mean, vicious deaths. I keep figuring out how to try to stab somebody in the neck. <laughs> that's my that's my ongoing project right now is neck stabs. I think I figured it out with my last Tybalt death. We have a really all right, a so great neck stab. Do you want to share the secret <laughs> of the neck stab? The secret or? of the neck stab. Well, the hard thing is, again, this is I'm trying to create a really cool image of somebody getting stabbed in the throat, but that's really dangerous, right? Soft stuff there, especially if you have a small pointy sword. And if I really put weight on it, that'll go through skin and muscle, right? We have we use blunted, obviously. One of the big safety things is the weapons are all blunt, right? But still, but still they're coming at you quick. They're coming at you quick. If it's a big, thick, blunt one, it probably won't stab into you. It'll just hit you and owie bruise. But that sort of ting, 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 that weapon is small and pointy, even with a button on it. If you put weight on it, it'll go through someone like a ski pole would, right? Hmm. So we have to be careful and safe and make sure that the, the actors know what the moves are and know what the safety rules are in terms of staying out of distance and cue reaction action and all that stuff. So, I'm all, you know, we're very careful around things like the neck. But we had a little setup for the gag where Romeo actually gets really close to Tybalt and starts kneeing and elbowing him and pounds him down to the ground. And then he puts the sword sort of on the back of his neck. And then we hide through the way that he moves. The sword actually never leaves the neck. It's already past him. But it's, it's revealed in the way that he moves. It shows the audience that it makes it look like it suddenly went through his neck. But it actually didn't. It was always, mm. it was always already past him. It's totally safe. And he's actually in control of it. You know, that's we, we're always trying to figure out how to make stuff like that happen. It's illusion work, a lot of it, especially the deaths, especially unarmed work. It has a lot in common with magic, right? And and again, uh, I'm, it's movement. It's movement more than moves. I keep thinking about it when I watch fights that I work on and even other fights now. I don't even care what the swords are doing between the two bodies. It's about that story of how are the two bodies moving through space. If somebody's going towards me and I'm going backwards, I'm losing. They're on the attack. I'm on the on the defense. The audience might not understand if I throw a counterattack in the middle. If I'm walking backwards, I still look like I'm walking backwards. And we live in a physical world, and we understand when somebody encroaches on our space, and we understand that, and we understand even more if they have a weapon, right? What are the things that that we understand at a gut level? Because that's what theater is it's about communicating to somebody at the gut level. And so even as a fight director, I love my intellectual stuff. I love thinking about all the high art and the metaphor of the guy pinned against the bed as he fights with the sword. And I love all the cool fancy moves that I know how to do. And when I can get actors to do them, that's great. But what's important is what does the audience take away in the end? And I think sometimes that's about going backwards a few steps from the, all the fancy moves and saying, what is it that's going to tell the story of this guy's in trouble, this guy's in trouble. So like the there's the guy who's the good guy and the guy who's the bad guy. And so... Early on, I just have them kind of exchanging a couple moves with the sword. And then the bad guy starts getting in close and hitting the good guy, 
which again, the good guy's not hitting back, but the bad guy's kind of sneaking in and throwing an elbow at him or kneeing him in the side. And so I think that that, to me, that tells a story to the audience of, oh, he's willing to get rough and the other guy's not willing to get rough. And so it's looking bad for the hero because he's getting roughed up. But then in the end, with a nice little fancy piece of sword work, he wins. And I hope that, to me, I hope that makes him look noble. I hope that makes him look like he's somebody who maybe not is not a sword fighting expert, but is learning through the course of the fight. Right? How do I take them on that journey within the choices and the choreography? Because I do think of it a little bit as writing. Right? I'm writing a little scene. The, the, the text says they fight, right? And right. you look at Shakespeare. So I have to think about how am I writing a little scene, a little arc that gets them back to where they start doing text again. You did the fight direction for Voodoo Macbeth mm-hmm. at Studio 620, and that that's a very, I mean, that whole play is about fighting and violence. Absolutely. I love doing the big fight at the end of, of Mac because it's a really, again, Shakespeare gives you these awesome fight stories. So we come in and we say, okay, look, it's Voodoo Macbeth. We're set in Haiti. So we gave them machetes instead of, you know, the old big English long swords. But again, it almost doesn't matter what the weapon in hand is. What's the story? So you have Macduff and he's here to fight Macbeth. And so we chose to have him charge Macbeth right away. And Macbeth's on a battlefield, right? He doesn't necessarily know who this guy is who's charging him. If it was the period, he would probably have armor on. He wouldn't even see the face, right? People would be identified by insignia or badges. So they, we had them fight for a second. And then we had Mac knock Macduff down. And he's holding there and he realizes it's Macduff. And he says, in the play, he says, you know, I'm not going to kill you. I've already too much blood. My soul is too much charged with blood of thine already is the line. I've already killed your whole family. I'm not going to kill you too is what he says, I'm not going to fight, right? If you actually look at the text before that, when Macduff first enters, he says, turn, hellhound, turn, right? That line isn't turn around. Turning is turning your sword in the scabbard to draw. He's saying Macbeth has sheathed his sword and will, and he wants him to pull out his sword so he can fight. I'm not going to kill you unless it's an honest, fair fight. And so that's what happens. He says, you know, Macbeth walks away. And so Macduff is standing here saying, fight me. And so the next phrase that we did was what uh, uh, me and the actors referred to as the Matrix phrase, where Macduff just charges at Macbeth, and Macbeth is just kind of lazily avoiding all of his attacks. He's not even trying to really block them, not trying to counterattack, because according to the story, Macbeth at this point believes that he is invincible, right? The witches have told him he's not going to be killed by somebody unless that somebody is not born of woman. So he thinks he's invincible. So he's just kind of, you know, doing these little avoidances and he looks really awesome, right? And then we had another little phrase where again, he kind of beats him back and it's, it's designed, all designed to make Macbeth look like he's going to win. And it's the hardest thing. The audience knows these stories. They know how it ends. So how can we try to create some suspense so that they're still in the moment, enjoying it, believing that, hey, this could, tonight it might all change. They might choose a different ending. But then there's that big moment in the fight where I always like to think that, again, in terms of scoring, Macduff is losing, 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 and Macbeth is just untouchable. And then suddenly Macbeth says, look, man, chill out, get out of here. You bear a charmed life that must not yield to one of woman born. And then Macduff has this moment where he realizes, I can win this thing, that's me. And then there's a story, again, there's a journey in the fight, not just a Macduff comes out and kills Macbeth and it's over, right? That there's a, there's some kind of arc to it in the characters. And I think that's a wonderful moment if you see that actor playing Macduff really realize, oh, I can, I can win, I can kill you. And then he tells him, and then to see Macbeth crumble. Oh no, and he says, he says, again, it's all in the text, it's all this wonderful journey, I won't fight with you. He says, I won't fight with you. And if there's that moment where he says, okay, whoa, I'm not gonna fight, and he's gonna yield. And Macduff says, yield the coward, and live to be the show and gaze of the time. And we'll have the, as our rarer monsters are painted on a pole, and under writ, here may you see the tyrant. And then to see Macbeth absorb that and decide, no, I don't care. I don't care even if I'm gonna lose, I'm gonna fight till the end. 
because I'm as a director, I've worked on Macbeth and I love the play. And I think one of the problems is people forget it's the tragedy of Macbeth. It's not the the snidely whiplash of Macbeth. <laughs> you know, he's he's a tragic figure. And what what makes him heroic, even in his awfulness, is that he decides I'm gonna fight to the end. Last time I directed it, we didn't even show his death. He fights. He says, "Lay on Macduff and Danby he that first guy's holding up," and they fought their way off stage. And then Macduff comes on and says, "I killed him." And mm-hmm. Holds up the head. He obviously dies. But I think there's something charming about seeing him go out, and we don't see him die. We see him go out fighting because that's who he is. That whole speech about you know, I've gone too far already. I got to keep going forward. That's the only thing to do. And there's something brilliant about that. I think. See, that's so interesting to me because I'm a word person. And so I'm thinking that the words are telling all this story. And then as I'm listening to you, I'm having to rethink, re- mm-hmm. sort of re-experience the play as if it was not so much a word story, but the physical action of the fighting. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, I love words. And Shakespeare is about the words. So we're trying to suit, as he would say, the word to the action, the action to the word, right? That's is a give and take back and forth. There's a great French teacher of clown, a guy who worked with the, uh, the Lecoq School, Philippe Goyer, and I love the way he says it. He says, the words are to the actions as the sauce to the meat, right? They must float on top of the action. Uh, playwrights are amazing what they do. And the words they give us are so incredible and cool. But our job, they, they take care of that. Like when I talk to my students about it, they're so worried about the words and how to say the words and getting the words across the audience. It's like, as long as you're clear, as long as you are clear in what you are saying, they will get it. And don't do work that the words are doing. If the words are, as you put it, if the words are telling that story, what are you adding to that, mm-hmm. if anything? Or are you just letting the words stand on their own, as often you must do in Shakespeare, right? When you're doing that soliloquy, I don't think you need to do a lot. You just need to let the words float. You need to understand how to parse them apart, how to make sure that the audience understands when you're making this point versus that point, how to highlight the things they need to understand, right? I had a great teacher of Shakespeare who really said, you know, it's about can you reduce the speech to like 10 words and still get the sense across and then make sure that those 10 words are the ones the audience hears out of the large, almost undifferentiated mass of poetry. But still, I think when I'm working on a a text that's less textually based, you know, a more contemporary script, it's like, don't don't do the playwright's work. The playwright's done that work. What's it that you bring to it is what we talk about. Because I think it's important. That's Otherwise, what's the point of an actor? We're just a walking tape recorder. And then you are involved with the Tampa Shakespeare Festival? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, It's been a, a fun journey so far. We started two years ago uh, with a production of Romeo and Juliet and a production of Macbeth. I was walking through the riverfront park across from the Straws, and I, there's an old amphitheater there that was really beautiful. And we really, I was walking through it, I'm like, why is nobody using this? This amphitheater's gorgeous. And so I talked to Jack Holloway, who's the artistic director of Hattrick. They're up in Clearwater now at Ruth Eckert Hall, a wonderful little theater company. And we started talking about, well, why don't we do something? And then what is it to do? And why is it that a community of this size with this level of artistic quality and it doesn't have some kind of outdoor Shakespeare event? You know, when cities all over this country have at least something. So we said that would be a, a smart thing to do and a nice thing to do for the city. And so we said, yeah, let's do it. And let's model it off that New York thing and try to make it free, you know? Wow. And we spent two years at Waterworks Park two shows each season in rep with the same company of actors. We're in the process of searching for a home. We're going to keep going because uh, it's just been, the response was incredible. 
I mean, you know, when we were a new organization, we'd never done anything before, and 1,400 people showed up over three weekends to see us the first season and second season. Wow. Yeah, um, so people came. I mean, I remember it was a walk backstage during R&J. I was playing Tybalt and fight directing. And uh, Jack, who's another big guy like me with a beard and everything, I walk up to Jack, and he's playing the nurse. So he's in this giant dress with, like, this wimble covering his beard. And I go, Jack, there's, like, 250 people out there. And Jack looks at me and goes, oh, man. I always wanted to be in something people saw. <laughs> so it was, a, it was a good time. And the response was great. And we love the fact that we can keep it free. And we try to keep the plays really short and, and digestible. We do cut them. Um, we run them under 90 minutes with no intermission is the goal. And really, because we want people to just feel that it's accessible. What I love about being outdoors is you can bring your family. And if the kids need to run off, they can run off. If you want to walk away, you can walk away. People can walk in in the middle of it. It was great when we were rehearsing outdoors because kids would literally come by and this one girl comes by and she sits down. It's the dress rehearsal for Macbeth. We're finishing this thing up and she's looking at it. She's like, is there kissing in this play? And I'm like, yeah, ew. <laughs> and then she goes, so what is this? And I go, well, it's this play. It's Macbeth by Shakespeare. So we're opening on Thursday. And she goes, so is that like when I can see it on Netflix? <laughs> and I realized this kid had no context for live performance. Oh, yeah. But it's great. It's great to be out there in the community providing... Again, we have, there's so much great theater on both sides of the bay here, and it, and we try to be a connection to that for people because we're a low a low investment, and you know something that people feel good about going. To, I'm going to see Shakespeare. I'm not fancy, you know. I remember this play from college. We get that people come. And it's like I don't go to the theater, but I remember reading this play in high school, right? Or again, I have a family and I can't afford a babysitter, but I can come out to the park because it's okay if the kids scream and run. Right. And that's where we where we want to be. We want to be accessible, and we want to be the kind of thing that again is an open event, not a closed event. The theater is, uh, there's a great improv teacher who talks about open audiences versus closed audiences, right? Whether the audience is open and people can come and go as they please when you're busking on the street, right? Versus a theater where we're like, you pay a ticket and you walk in and we close the doors, right? right? And then the show starts at this time and then the intermission is at this time and you don't get up. Right. If somebody gets up, everybody looks and they're like, oh, what's, what's wrong with them, right? We want to be the place where people can get up if you need to get up. Sure. And wander around if they need to wander around. Not making it precious, making it uh -huh. accessible. It's really uh -huh. our big mission because we want as many people as possible to come and enjoy it and to feel that it's something that they own and that's for the community and a communal experience more than just a piece yeah. of theater. Obviously, I love going to the theater and having this you know sacred, quiet experience mm -hmm. too. And there's nothing wrong with the theater saying, hey, we want to be the place where you come and you're quiet. But that can feel exclusive and I think has become too exclusionary and become too heady and not enough about joy. You know, I hear people poo-poo scripts that are really fun. That's what I love about Hattrick, right? So Hattrick's up at Ruth Eckert Hall in Pinellas, and they do really good theater. Their theater is, I, I almost never see one of their plays and don't think that, that was solid work. Really good acting, great direction. Jack is one of the best directors I've ever seen. And But the scripts they pick, they do spookums and swashbucklers and comedies. And I know people who go, oh, that's not serious theater. But it is. It's really serious theater. They take it really seriously and they do good work. And you go see an audience and that audience walks out of there filled with joy or scared or whatever. Again, they're moving people. And I think sometimes we lose sight of the fact that our job is to move people. It's not to create some, you know, sacred little crystal egg bubble art thing. Mm -hmm. It's it's Theater is the art that's for the people, right? The people... In Shakespeare's day, they were doing it in inns. They would show up at an inn, and if you're going to get people to watch and throw coins, you need to be entertaining, you know? If you're the, the Montebanks and the, the Commedia dell'arte, they would show up in the square, and they would do their routines. And, you, like, you read Shakespeare, right? When you read Shakespeare, he's constantly 
constantly telling you what happened in the last scene. Like every scene has a full <laughs> recap of the play in it. The reason for those scenes is because the assumption is people are going to wander in and out. Of course. And so you need to be constantly reminding them, last week on Macbeth. Right. right? That's, that's, the, right. that's the gag. Because they might have got distracted because they were, you know, buying some snacks or something. Or they started talking to their friend. Or they showed up late. But that's the theaters at the time were open audiences. And I think there's something to that in terms of just continuing to create a sense of that again, it's a communal event that you can come and go, and it's about entertaining. So you are also a faculty member at University of South Florida. Yeah, I love my teaching work. I adore the students at USF. I'm so lucky to be teaching there. The faculty, my the people I teach with are just amazing. Are you teaching fight direction or? Uh, well, we teach stage combat, so I teach a skills-based class. But uh, when I, as a teacher, I do, I think there's somewhat of an artificial distinction in the theater between actor, director, playwright, technician, stage manager. We have these roles and these specializations, and over the years they became very codified. You know, if you're a stage manager, you don't you don't act. If you're an actor, you don't direct. And our siloing of those roles can be detrimental to us as artists, because then we don't think about having ownership of the total or collaboration in the total. We think of ourselves as being like, I'm just an actor, I just do what the director tells me to do. And so I try to teach my students to think about it from multiple angles, because it helps you be a better actor. You, by taking a little journey to director land, you come back and go, Ah, uh, when the director gives me that direction, I understand what they want the audience to experience in terms of the story they're interpreting from the play, which I understand from reading the play, so I see my role in the greater whole. And we're a BA program, so that's really part of what we do. We really want to create somebody who sees the theater from multiple angles, because it will only help with communication. Again, when I'm talking to an actor, I need to know how to talk to an actor. You know, when I'm working with the singers at St. Pete Opera, I, try to, I understand classical music, so I try to use musical references to talk to them so that they are, uh, th that I'm speaking their language, right? Whatever room I'm in, because one of the great things about being a fight director as an artist is I get invited to so many different rooms, whether it's an opera or whether it's theater or whether it's a piece of film where they brought me in on a film project and whether it's comedy or tragedy or you know anything, any story that has violence, there's not as many experts in it. So I get invited to a whole lot of fun spaces. And you know, I'm putting down roots here. And so that's really what it's about right now is just hunkering down and making some good art. That sounds very, very good and quite believable based on our conversation. I have no doubt. So thank you very much, Dan Granke, yeah. for joining well, it's us. It's a pleasure. On... Thank you. It's my pleasure, too. This is Barbara St. Clair, and you've been listening to Arts In, also known as AI, the Creative Pinellas podcast, sponsored in part by the Pinellas County Board of County Commissioners, Visit St. Petersburg Clearwater, and the State of Florida Department of Cultural Affairs. Arts In is produced by Matt and Sheila Cowley. You can find more conversations with visual, literary, and performing artists and in-depth arts journalism at creativepinellas.org. Thank you for listening. <laughs>